The purpose is freedom, not condemnation. For example, sloth, we talked about last week. Sloth gives the promise of rest, but actually it traps you in cynicism. It traps you in a restlessness, which makes you feel exhausted all the time. So it actually never gives you what it promises. The freedom, on the other hand, produced by diligence is living into the mission and the work and the joy of God that actually produces energy and life. That's why we come to church, because we want to hear about and be reminded of our freedom in Christ and to join with others on this amazing, amazing mission of faith, hope, and love. I'm just so glad to be alive today. I'm glad to be in the church today. I'm glad, that's why I know so, uh, many of you here too, are, are here too. And so today what we're doing is we're going to have a conversation about this next sin of envy. Envy. So let me give you a couple definitions of envy. And like last week, gave you three definitions. I'm going to give you three definitions of envy. And again, we're going from kind of like envy at its top level, not so bad, not really sin envy. And as we go into the second and the third one, then you'll see how bad it can get. So number one on your outline, envy is aroused longing for what others have. Envy is aroused longing for what others have. It's pretty simple. Then on the second level, uh, when it gets a little bit more twisted, it is a persistent desire to have the qualities or possessions of another. And that word, I'm not sure if it made it into your outline, but that word persistent is key. It's not just a regular desire. It's a persistent desire to have the qualities or possessions of another. And then when envy is really deep-rooted, when it is taking over your perception, when it is taking over your heart, it is a deep animosity towards another person, deep animosity towards another person, and it's probably behind that, it's going to probably be towards God as well, a deep animosity produced by fierce jealousy. So again, per the first definition, when you're envy, it's just aroused, you know, longing for what others have. It's not that big a deal. It's something that we all experience. When your friend posts their latest Instagram and they had breakfast this morning and they had French toast with powdered sugar, I mean, it just looks good. You have food envy, right? When your friend, they buy a new house or they get a new car and you, you take a tour or they give you a drive or something like that, there's a part of you that says, man, I wish I could afford that. I wish I had that house. I wish I had that car. It's just something nice, right? It's not necessarily uh, at a level where it's, it's sin yet. In fact, there's a part of envy that actually could, you could say is, is helpful because all of us probably admire certain people in life. We admire successful business leaders. We admire spiritual leaders. We admire craftsmen, artists, famous people like that. And what happens is that we want, there's an aspect that reminds us of the success we want. It reminds us of the competency we wish that we could also employ in our own lives. And so there's a natural part of envy that is not sin, but it can actually inspire us. And nothing wrong with that. But that's the way that each of these seven deadly sins work. They work at the base level with something that's pretty benign, something safe, just desiring to have something. Nothing wrong with that. But persistent desire over time, it leads to then this cancer of the soul. In fact, when it comes to envy, right, this particular sin is so dangerous, it actually made the top 10 list, as in the Ten Commandments. And what's really interesting about the Ten Commandments is that when you read the Ten Commandments, six of the Ten Commandments 
they're just one-liners. You know, don't have any other idols before me. Don't, uh, you know, commit adultery. Don't murder. But three of the Ten Commandments, it's as if God has to say a little bit more. Like these things, I need to, he adds some commentary. Um, in Exodus chapter 20, so this is God's description through Moses of the particular sin of envy. So God says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. And again, he could have just stopped there because that's kind of the way the sequence goes. You know, don't have any other gods before me. You should not commit uh, adultery. Do not commit murder. Uh, you should not cover your neighbor's house. You know, we could just kind of go. We, we understand it. But it's as if God has a moment of pause and he thinks, you know what? People aren't just going to covet other people's houses. It's going to go a little bit deeper than that, right? And then so that's just the beginning. And so then he adds, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And again, you would think that that would be enough. I mean, to, cover, to covet your neighbor's wife is pretty outrageous. It's pretty out there. And, and to actually admit it. And back then in the ancient cultures, if you actually had an affair with someone, right, we learned a couple weeks ago, you'd actually be stoned for that. So it's pretty out there. It's pretty in your face. Man, if someone were even to admit that, man, I coveted my neighbor's wife, I mean, it's pretty out there. God, I think we, we've heard enough. We understand what, what coveting it is. But then he adds, or his male or female servant. And we're like, okay, God, we get it. And then he says, or his ox. Okay, God, we really understand. Uh, coveting goes deep. Or his donkey. And then it's as if God just throws up his hands in the air. He says, you know what? Anything, anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's just cover it all because envy runs so deep. Uncontrolled envy is fierce jealousy. It is a relational sin that results in murder, murder, physical murder, and as Jesus reinterpreted, also murder in your heart. And I know that can sound really, really dramatic, but in Scripture, in Genesis 4, the very first sin, after the recorded sin of the fall of Adam and Eve, is actually Cain murdering his brother Abel because of envy. So if you want to turn your Bibles there to Genesis chapter 4, beginning at verse 2, it says this, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain, he worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord, and Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. So Abel kept the flocks, all right, he's a shepherder, um, and Cain, he worked the ground. He's a farmer till the soil, fruits, vegetables, and so forth. And so one day, it says over time, one day they came and they gave an offering to God. They want to present something that kind of maybe somehow represented uh, their love, their devotion, whatever it might be, to God. And so Cain, what he brought, because he was a farmer, he brought this amazing veggie tray, all right? So it made Costco's veggie tray look like nothing. I mean, he brought the best of fruits and vegetables. But Abel, he brought barbecue, right? I mean, Cain, he just didn't have a prayer as far as like who, what God would like more, right? I mean, one guy brings a veggie tray to your, to your potluck, another person brings barbecue. Who are you going to like more, right? So what happens? It says, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Now, okay, for real, what's, what's the deal here? Is it that God doesn't like vegetables, right? And he only likes meat. That's my preference. But is God like a spoiled kid? You know, I want my Big Mac. No, that's not God. 
That's not a God worthy of our honor. That's not a God worthy of praise or worship. That's not what's going on. Behind an offering, like when you come here to this place and, and we're offering our, our worship and our singing, like behind, and, and we're offering our lives and we're offering our attention and we come present to be present in this place, we're, we're bringing our whole lives behind that. And hopefully we come to a place like this with also a great and deep sense of humility. God is looking at our hearts as we bring our offerings. And Abel, by no means, he wasn't perfect. When you bring an offering, it's something you bring with humility. You bring your whole life into. And so Abel's heart, right, of life reflects not a perfection of being a, a good boy, or a good man, or a good Christian, but rather, not perfection, but rather pursuit. It's an authentic, genuine pursuit towards the heart of God. But Cain's life, we learn, does not, did not reflect that. It was filled with hatred, filled with jealousy. That's why God says in verse 6, he begins to question him. God says, then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why are you angry? Why is your face so sad, so downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? And I love that God, instead of saying, you know, you're so envious or you're so jealous or you're so full of, you know, depression, whatever it might be, God just comes and begins like a counselor to question, trying to get at what is the issue? What is the root issue? Because, Cain, you know it has nothing to do with the offering itself. It's your heart that's twisted. And then God goes on to say this, but if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And what I love about this particular conversation that he's having with Cain, he's, he's talking to someone who's really at his, his lowest, perhaps most twisted moment, because just in a few verses, he's going to kill his brother. Okay? So he's, he's talk, God is talking to someone who's, at, who's, who's warped, who's wrapped with sin. And he says, this sin desires to have you. But then he says, but you must rule over it. And, and I don't know about you, but that's really, really good news. Because kind of depending on maybe a little bit of your upbringing and what you've heard about sin, sometimes it feels like in your struggle with sin, people will tell you, like, you just don't have a chance. You know, sin is just going to rule over you. You can do nothing. You know, you probably heard, you can do nothing apart from God to overcome sin, right? I mean, that's what I've heard before. It makes sense. But God is talking to Cain. Cain doesn't know Jesus. Cain doesn't have the spirit of God in him that can overcome sin. But God is encouraging him. He's saying, listen, there's this sin that desires to have you, but you've got to fight against it. You've got to do your part. You've got to figure out, you, you need to rule over it. He says, look, I know your heart's a mess, but you've got to overcome it. You've got to make a better decision. You were born to be free. Don't let envy rule over you. You've got to rule over it. God didn't say, this sin, and it's crouching at your door. It desires to have you, and you don't have a chance. This sin, it desires to have you. And only the really spiritual people who've built up over time, you know, this power can rule over it. This sin, it desires to have you, but only the really nice people who grew up in church, only those guys have a chance to rule over it. No. He's talking to him in the moment now, at his worst moment, where he's consumed with envy. He says, right now, you can make a decision. You can decide whether or not you're going to choose to give in. 
to make the right choice and don't give in to the evil that will enslave you. But we know what happens, right? When he saw Abel and he saw his brother, his brother had such good character. Again, he wasn't perfect, but it was his pursuit. He saw his brother's faith in God that he had was filled with jealousy. It was magnified over and over again. It was persistent because it's something we can struggle with for a while. And this hostility that he had toward his brother, he said, hey, brother, let's go out to the field. Let's go hang out. And in the field, he killed him. And this is the twisted, twisted nature of envy. Just, you, you gotta listen to this. This is so important. And this is how you like understand of whether or not you're filled with envy. The twisted nature of envy this is that you hate people because of their good qualities, not their bad ones. That's what's so twisted about envy. You actually dislike people because of the good things that are happening in their lives, because of the good qualities about them, not their bad ones. It's really interesting in how twisted this gets. I mean, we all agree, right? We all can agree that, you know, we dislike untrustworthy people. People like in the category of thieves or child abusers or child molesters, uh, you know, wife beaters, wife abusers, terrorists, murderers. I mean, like cro crooked politicians. We, we don't like those people. It, it arouses a kind of righteous hostility towards them. We, we all agree in this place that, that, you know, bad character, wicked character combined with malicious behavior rightfully arouses our hostility against those people. But envy is so weird. Envy is so twisted that the hus your hostility is aroused towards good people. Your hostility is aroused towards people like qualities that they have that you actually want for yourself. It's like, I hate how smart he is. I hate how cute she is. Gosh, I hate how easy her job is and she gets paid so much. Man, it drives me crazy how, how gifted her son is. And all she does is brag about it. I hate how he owns more property than me. Man, I hate how he's a church leader. Who does he think he is? I hate going to their house. They just like to show off. Look at the car they drive. You know, if they were more godly, they would just be more modest. I hate that he has a stable job. You see, these are good people, upstanding citizens that we just want to eliminate because of the good and positive things in their life. I mean, if you had a, a son or daughter, right, who was smart and compassionate and kind and successful and had a great job and had healthy kids and, and they owned a house, was a leader at church and even drove a nice car, you'd be so blessed. You'd be so happy for them, right? These are the kinds of people we'd say, yeah, I'd want them to be my neighbors or, or a good friend. But the twisted nature of envy equates what is good to what is evil. And therefore, in our own self-righteousness, when you see something that is evil, you actually want to eliminate it. You want to get rid of it, or you want to distance yourself from it. When you get entangled in the sin of envy, what happens is when it grabs hold of your heart, I think that you're the problem when I'm the problem. That's what happens. When you're gripped in the sin of envy, I think you are the problem that needs to be eliminated. Now, what is, what is it? Why do we get so twisted 
What is it the broke what is the brokenness that envy is feeding? Well, I think it's this. I think it's fear. I think it's insecurity that says, I'm not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not who I should be. I should be more, but I can't be more. And why are you more? That's not fair, right? That's not fair. Your brother or sister is a reflection of something you're not, that you wish you were, and you can't handle it. Hey, guys, if you want to give me a, a handheld mic, I'll do that. I might be less interruptive. Yeah, you could do that. Thanks. Or a new one. Okay. <laughs> um, anyone here, does anyone here have jealousy? Jealous hostility toward a good friend. Anyone here jealous of another coworker? Envious of your best friend? Just use a new one. Brand new Okay, there we go. Mic test. One, two. Good. All right. Amen. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. So what's weird, okay, about envy, right? When you're jealous of a friend, um, maybe you're still single, right? Uh, one of your best friends, uh, you know, just got a girlfriend or boyfriend, and you, maybe you secretly hope they break up, you know? Anybody, one of our high schoolers here, you know, you hope you get into better schools or more schools than your other friends, any of you want your friends to gain weight, lose their job, get a zit on prom night? I mean, isn't it just, it's really strange. I mean, the way that envy works, it's, it's really strange. It's really twisted, right? Because we're actually hoping for bad things to happen to good people. That's how you begin to know that it's taking root in you. That's the twisted nature of envy, and we need to be able to recognize it. Social media, right? Social media, of course, we know it, it drives tons of envy. In the Journal of Science and Clinical Psychology, uh, research scientists wrote about the depressive aspects, effects of Facebook usage. I think I shared this before. But simply put is this. They've actually shown that the more time you spend on Facebook, the more miserable you will be. Why? Because you see all these pictures of people eating stuff and going on vacation and things like that, and it just makes people depressive. And so I did this a year ago, too. I wrote a happiness equation, all right, because uh, it's a Chinese church, and I figured, you know, this will, this, will, this will resonate, right? So happiness, all right, happiness is inversely proportional, okay, to the time that you spend on Facebook. And that's the equation for it. K is your constant. K is your constant happiness. So if you were to measure your happiness like 10, I'm really happy today, 1, I'm really depressed, super depressed, whatever your constant is, the moment you hit Facebook, your happiness just goes down the instant that you're on it, as you're seeing all these other fun pe things that people are doing, right? So basically, it means just this, that the more time that you spend on Facebook, right, social media, the greater your misery, right? And for, yeah, I was just thinking about this, right? Only in a Chinese church would you have an equation as one of your, like, sermon points, right? 
happiness is inversely proportional to K over TF. Some of you engineers are like, yeah, that speaks to me, man. That's like, that's really good. That's really good. Um, so what do we do? What do we do? How do we combat envy? Number one, okay, I'm going to give you three things. Number one is you've got to call it out. You've got to call it out in yourself. Admitting it is the first thing to do. If you keep it hidden in the dark, it's like mold that keeps growing. And again, I, I loved how God interacted with Cain. Cain's about to do the worst thing to do, to murder someone. That, that's the end result of, of envy. And God's asking questions, trying to, trying to get it out. He says, why are you so angry? Why are you so angry at your brother? Why are you so angry at your sister? Why are you so angry at your best friend? Why are you so angry at your, your, your counselor? Why are you so angry at your pastor? Why are you so angry at whoever it might be? What is it? What is it? Why are you so sad? Why are you sulking? In fact, I'll tell you this. One of the healthiest things that you could do when you're struggling with envy and looking at others, and why are others so blessed? Why are they so different? Why do those have things that I don't? One of the healthiest things that you can do is to have an honest conversation with God because God wants to have that conversation with you. He wants to have a conversation about the sense of lack that you feel in your life. And when you ask and when you seek and when you knock, I don't know how God is going to exactly answer you, but when you come out on the other end of that conversation, is you come out seeing how loved and how much you have actually in Christ. Talk about it in your community group. That's what we're all here for, to, 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 uh, to journey together. Number two is to overcome it. You've got to figure out a way to overcome it. God was so encouraging to Cain. He said, look, the sin is about to, it's encroaching at your door. It desires to have you, but you need to overcome it. How do you overcome it? A couple of ways I've, I listed there. Number one is through celebration. Two is repenting of my entitlement. And three is apologizing. Let me just go over those really quick. Celebrating the success of others. Really. Like really being happy for others. You know? Oh, you're pregnant again? Be really happy for them. Maybe you're, maybe you're trying to have a baby. Or maybe you don't have one yet and you want one one day. Like really be happy for another person. You're going for a particular promotion. Maybe someone else, your coworker is going for it too. Maybe they get it. Be really happy, like really, truly, honestly, happy. Be happy for good things that happen to people that you are envious of. Celebrate the success of others. This is a great way, a great way to combat envy, to break the cycle of envy in your own life. Number two, uh, there is repenting of entitlement. This is what happens too, is that when you look at what others have, you automatically begin to think, well, I deserve to have that too. Well, or why shouldn't I have those things as well? Why shouldn't I be able to enjoy those things as well? And what that does is it breeds this um, spirit of entitlement. Well, if they have it, I should get it too. There's no reason. So that what happens is when you do get it, when you do achieve it, you have no, you have zero gratitude for it. It breeds the spirit of entitlement. So we need to repent of that. Remember that all blessings come from God. All the goodness and all the money and all the possessions, whatever it might be, all the um, um, uh, you know, promotions, whatever, anything good that you're, you're seeking for in life, all of those things are allowed and come 
from the hand of God. We need to repent of our entitlement and practice gratitude. And number three is we overcome envy through apologizing. Because this is what happens, is that when you become envious of someone, there will be distance in that relationship. Because you look at them and they remind you of things that you don't have and that you want in your life. And because it is always reminding you of that particular pain, you distance yourself from that person. At its worst, when it, when it gets deep into you, you actually have hatred and animosity towards that person. And your relationship got all weird, got upside down. We don't talk to each other anymore. We avoid each other, whatever it might be. You need to admit that. Some of you need to actually go back and, and go up to a friend and apologize to them because of the way that you've envied them and the way that it's disrupted and distorted your relationship. All right? Third one, and this is probably maybe the most important one, is to reinvest in your own God-given life. Reinvest in your own God-given life. In the end, envy is a violent rejection of your own soul, of your own life, and of your own uniqueness. Let me say that one more time. In the end, envy is a violent rejection of your own soul, of your own life, and of your own uniqueness. Because what happens is when you, when you begin to look at the world and you look at other people, you look at them and you say, man, everyone's life is so much better than mine. Everyone's marriage is so much better than mine. Everyone's job is so much better than mine. Everyone's church is so much better than mine. Everyone's friends are so much better than mine. Everyone's life is so much better than mine. God, you really skimped out on me, right? You said you knit me together in my mother's womb. Well, you didn't knit enough. See, those who struggle with envy usually are filled with a lot of self-hatred. A lot of, uh, a lot of um, and a lot of that comes from our families. Do you know any people who come from healthy families? Do you know any people who come from non-dysfunctional families? No one? They really do exist. Really, there are really parents who like love their kids and feed their kids and nurture their kids and respect their kids like all the time. They're actually usually in the Midwest or something like that. There's a few of them. There's a few of them, uh, you know, fully functional families. But there then is the rest of us, right, who grew up in interesting families. And I know for me, right, is that I started feeling self-hatred pretty early on in life. Because growing up for me, I was constantly filled with messages of doubt that my life really didn't matter. And I feel like for, for me, like for such a large portion of my life, I just longed to be someone else. Like I just longed to be someone else other than me because it seemed like everyone else's life had value, but I couldn't see the value in my own life. And so I had this insatiable deficit that I was just unlovable until I met the love of Christ, of course, but for so long. You know, when people talk about coming to Christ and, and their different struggles and coming to faith, for me, some, some people, they have a difficult time understanding God or coming to Christ because they can't believe in God. Like, I can't believe that maybe a, a God actually exists. For me, I didn't have any trouble believing that a God exists, but that didn't make me a Christian. 
I 100% believed that a God existed. But I could not believe that a God who was so loving and so graceful and so good could actually love and value me. That was my issue. And for so long, I was like, no, God, yeah, I know you died on the cross, but I can't, you know, that's not for me, right? I'm just way too outside of that. How could you, how could you love me? I just couldn't believe that the fullness of God's love, that he would have enough room for me. I, I think that's why for me, um, my messages, uh, uh, teaching and, and preaching and things like that, it, it always goes back to, and in a way it should, but it always goes back to this particular aspect of, of the gospel, that the gospel is the reconciliation of all things, of all hearts, of all people, no matter how far away you are from God, no matter how messed up things are, that the gospel is, is the core of what we go back to. It's the reconciliation for all people and all things. And I think here it was scripturally, right? In John 13, 34, 35, right? Jesus says, a new command I give you to love one another and by your love, by the love that you have for each other, the world is going to know that you are my, are my disciples. And so the world is supposed to look at Christians, to look at your life, and there should be a tinge of envy. Not in a bad way, but in a tinge of envy. And here's the thing, right? You can do two, as a Christian, you can do two things with that envy. Number one, you can say, you know what? I've got that joy down in my heart. I've got that joy, but you need to repent, and then you can have it too. That's choice one. Choice two is you can say this. I've got that joy down in my heart, and I've got joy for you, and for you, and for you, and for you, and you can have it too. And what happens is that when people who don't have faith, when they come into contact to people who do have faith, they realize that the people who do have faith, they aren't trying to make you jealous. They're actually inviting you to share in that love. It's, it's kind of like this. You know, I've had friends, right? Uh, they would tell me they got a promotion. Something at work, something really good happened to their life. I'd be like, oh, that's awesome. Tell me more about it. they tell me about it. I might say, hey, let's celebrate. Let me take you out to celebrate your promotion, right? So I'll take them out. I'll pay for it. But then I've also had friends like this where they got a promotion or something at work. And they say, hey, Roy, this happened. This is really good. I want to take you out to celebrate. Which friend do I like better? <laughs> right? Chosenness. Chosenness. When you meet God, and God says he chose you, he loves you. Chosenness was never meant to stir the worst part of envy in others. Chosenness was meant to propagate chosenness in others, to stir inclusion that every life matters to God. See, here it is. When you know that you've been chosen by God, when you've learned that your life is a life worthy to reinvest in because God reinvested into it, the overflow of love has enough for the inclusion of your friend who is more talented, who's better looking, better dressing, better prayer life, better mom, better dad, better with their finances. There's just so much affirmation in God's choosing of you, the greatness of your life, that you have nothing but joy for the chosen and uniqueness of your brother and your sister. You get that? Amen? It's because you see the centeredness of God's grace and love in your life you have nothing but overflowing joy and hope and compassion for the life of others, even if they're better than you in every other way. That's the beauty. It's 
the power, the gospel. That's what gets rid of your envy. You learn to see the chosenness of your own life. And guess what? Here's what's really interesting, what's really cool. And this is kind of like another level of maturity. This is how you know. The beauty of the gospel as well is that it works in the opposite direction. See, when you know that you've been chosen by God, that overflow of love, it has enough for the inclusion of who you think your enemy is. The gay person, the lesbian person, the bleeding liberal, the upright conservative, the immigrant, the alien, the criminal, the poor, the whoever you consider is unworthy of your particular love and attention. But there's so much affirming in God's choosing of you, the greatness of your life, that you have nothing but joy for the chosen uniqueness of others, no matter how far away they are from God. That's God's goodness. That's God's grace. That is transformation. That is love. That's the gospel. So we're going to enter into a time of communion. And what I want you to do during this time of communion is I'm praying that you have this experience where you know that this communion is actually for you. It's actually for you. Because God gave these very visible, tangible, practical expressions so you would know that his body died was given for your life. He has this expression as we drink the, uh, uh, the juice. It's a visual, tangible expression, a representation of his blood, that someone's blood was actually shed for you because God thought that his life, that your life was worthy of his life because he saw that much love for you that much potential, that much uniqueness, that much love, that much creativity, that much competence for you, for your heart, for your life. And what God died for, we should at least have a little bit of thought of like, I want to honor a little bit of that, of what he died for. And for that little bit, what he died for, he died for you. Some of you need to move from that camp of self-hatred to begin to honor yourself because God, not because of what you've done, because of God has honored you. And you might begin as you take the bread, as you drink of the juice, that that life and that grace of Jesus, who says that you are worth it, will begin to fill your souls as well. So if I could have the communion ushers come forward. And as you do, I'm just going to pray for our congregation. Pray for you all real quick. Lord God, I want to thank you, Lord, for this moment again that brings us all together. Thank you for this place, this space called church. It's just, it's so sacred. And I love that we can come to a place like this and, and talk about these things that are really um, just deep in our hearts that affect all of us. At, at all levels, no matter how, quote-unquote, unsuccessful we may seem to the world or how successful we are, we all in different ways struggle with just wanting the more or desiring to be something else that others are or that others have. And for some of us, it's a persistent desire where we're so caught up in other people's lives that we've neglected the gift and the uniqueness 
of our own. Because as you said in Psalm 139 that you saw us, that you imagined us, you knit us together in our mothers. I mean, before, before time, that you knit together our souls, that you knew us. And that when you looked down on us, God, there was not only delight, but there was also vision for what our lives would turn into, what they would be if they are guided by the Spirit and empowered by truth and love and grace. And so I pray for some of us um, today, especially those who are just kind of given up on themselves, who just said, you know, just that constant, I'm, I'm not much, I'm just average, I'm not going to amount to much, I'm just kind of kind of do my thing, just kind of fly below the radar, I'm not going to make waves, um, I was never meant to be, quote unquote, great, or I was never meant to be so-and-so, I was never meant to have any impact, I was... I just want to lead a really, really quiet life and just, I'll be okay with that. But a God, I know that in their heart of hearts, Lord, they are not okay with that. And I pray that your truth will resonate with them, that they would know that you are not okay with that. God, that you see in every life the life and the life-giving love of Christ and the life-giving potential of a life that's on mission in faith hope, and love that inspires and creates energy to impact and transform this world. That's what you see. People who are life shapers, life transformers, beginning with our own hearts and lives. So as we partake of your bread and, your, uh, and, and the juice of your body and your blood, may it be a very tangible aspect of your grace that we receive today to know that we were so worthy God not because of our own doing but because of what you've done for us that you declared us worthy and you honored us God and our hearts would explode with love gratitude and transformation because of what you've done for us we pray all these things in Jesus name amen so I'm going to serve our communion ushers.